Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Coming to you direct from our super secret studio. Hello, this is Washington for Beautiful People on Deep State Radio. I'm your host, Emily Brandwin, at CIA Spy Girl on Twitter. And we're broadcasting from the sunny West Left Coast. And I'm so excited to say that for the last couple of times we've broadcast from L.A., it's been rainy and yucky. And I was looking at it as a horrible sign. So the sun is out. It's amazing. And it's only appropriate because I'm very, very excited about our guest. He is a four-time, four-time James Beard Award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, teacher, uh, entrepreneur, restaurant owner, and my favorite part of his title, so social justice advocate. You've seen him all over TV and Bizarre Foods, uh, Driven by Food. I didn't give the full title because I'm still keeping my guest name a secret. He's been to 170 countries, written tons of books. You've seen him everywhere. And he's one of my favorite, favorite foodies and personalities, uh, Andrew Zimran. Thank you. Jeez, that is a lot to live up to. I was nervous when you said beautiful people, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I don't count. And then then you started listing off all those accolades and you were so kind. There's no way I can measure up for that. Should we stop Just, right now? Just end it? No, let's let's I'm, you know what? I'm going to dig deep and try to go for it. Uh, I mean, because I, you know, I want, don't want to put you off. But yeah, I know. No, I I'm, like to... I, I'm endlessly competitive. Me, let's too. I'm let's very, start. very competitive. It's not good sometimes. And I'd like Just, to say that I'm. <laughs> You know what, Andrew, I'm even competitive on things I shouldn't be competitive on that I have no right to be competitive on, like anything athletic, and I'm still competitive. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I shouldn't be. There's there's nothing that I do that I don't want to win at. Now, that doesn't mean that I follow through on that feeling, because sometimes it's good to let, you know, your kid win a, you know, a bowling match if he's feeling particularly down or having a bad self-esteem day. So as a parent, sometimes you might not try as hard, but I, I routinely uh, want to win and be the best at everything. And then I have to talk myself out of it in order to be a, a, a decent human being. <laughs> I tell people all the time, I'm actually a really crappy human being who has to work really hard at being a good one. So the net net is that I'm slightly above average but in today's world of dismal people, I oh. think that plays to my advantage. It totally plays to your advantage. It's funny. I taught my nephew who's 10. I'm teaching him how to play poker because I want to thoroughly corrupt him. Sure. It, literally, it was the game we learned when we were young. And I got kicked out of Sunday school for playing poker once. And so I want to pass this on, of course. And he's super competitive. And I said, I'll only play with you once you know what you're doing if we play for money. And he said, sure. And I said... I will take your money. Are you okay with that? He said, yes. And I said, are you sure? He paused. And then he said, I don't know. And I said, well, you better think about that because I'm not playing with you. I'm going to take your money and you're going to learn. 
That's so funny. You grew up in the same house I did. Uh, holidays, we played penny poker when yeah. I was a kid growing uh, growing up. And, you know, I'm raised in the 60s and 70s in New York City. When we traveled, you know, there was there was no TV or radio when you traveled. There were, were no laptops or iPhones or anything like that. So you actually had to do things. The hotels that you stayed in in those days, God, I sound like my grandfather, uh, you know, had big lobbies. So that, you know, friends and family, when you traveled, you would all like congregate in the lobby and like do stuff like play cards. Yeah. Um, and when I was when I was alone with my dad, we would play backgammon. So I'm ruthless uh, at cards and backgammon. Um, it gets it gets me into a lot of trouble sometimes. Oh, God, I I was playing uh, one of these board games at uh, my uh my ex-wife's family's cabin once and everybody was uh playing friendly and not keeping score uh, and i, I, I literally had that. how do you I not keep score get i don't get that I, exactly i'm like what's the point of playing the game and it's you know everyone's like oh we we have fun and conversation all the rest okay. of it. i'm like yeah but the fun of the conversation is better when you can keep score and there's people coming back there's a better story I guess here's, here's what it is. Here's what it is for me. Life is great, but life with better stories is better than life with worse stories. And when you're keeping score, there's a narrative to whatever you're doing. So I guess that is what informs my, my, my choices, better you know, stories. You know what? It's funny. Cause I was just having this conversation with Ian, our engineer. We were talking about stories and my theory in life is that everybody should have a few good stories. And if you talk to someone and they're like, I don't have a story, then literally run away because that means they've not lived their life. They don't risk, they don't do anything. And they're going to be boring as hell run away. But everybody should have good stories because that's the best. Also when I play, I gloat. So that's why I don't think people like to play games with me. <laughs> I'm a well, here's the, horrible here's winner. The, here's the thing. I think, I think everyone, my experience is that you know, especially traveling so much and meeting so many strangers, everybody does have a story. I yep. think people are just so afraid of being transparent. They're so afraid of matching feelings they have to what's actually going on in their lives. And I think that's that's the real sad part, because if you if, if those people actually did tell their stories and were more transparent and yep. did reveal a side of themselves, they would connect to people more often. I, I do think that outgoing people have a little bit of an advantage in that, in that way when they walk into a room of being able to connect with people. Now, sometimes I can say as an outgoing person, I, I make mistakes. I, you know, I either glom on to people that I don't want to, or I misread <laughs> the room and offend somebody. Uh, but I, I, I really think that in general, humankind, well, let me, let me rephrase that. Here in America, we need to be more transparent about what's really going on with uh, our daily lives and how we think and feel, even with strangers. I'm, I'm, if, if I say to somebody, hey, how's your day going? And they res respond to me, fantastic. It's an immediate disconnect uh, because very <laughs> rarely is that, the, is that the case. I mean, oftentimes something good has just happened, uh, but overall everyone's day has ups and downs. And I'd rather hear what's really going on with someone than just hear some sort of crazy, here's how great my day is because 
my kid just got accepted to some prestigious program somewhere and that then it makes everybody feel less than. It's funny at, at the CIA when we talk a lot about connecting because it part of the job if you're an operations officer is to connect with people and we call it the you me same same which is not a great technical word for espionage you're doing the you me same same but everybody has a you me same same someone has something that is similar to somebody else and you can easily connect to that and that will just link you instantly and you have that human connection that we don't have as much anymore because yeah. the world is just so explosive but I, I agree with you a million trillion percent about that. Well, it, 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 attachment. I mean, you know, it, I mean, look, the the you know, you me same same is I think a fantastic name uh, because <laughs> you know my my wonky way of getting at it. I've taken a lot of shit from the people who I work with. Is that I tell everyone I need to co-regulate with you before we operationalize, uh, which is a fancy pants uh, way of saying fancy. we. We, we need to you, me, same, same. Um, so now I'm going to steal your you, me, same, same and replace my my boring slogan that everybody here at work hates. Um, it's the highest form of praise when people steal my stuff. I love it. I literally love it so much when people say, oh, can I steal them? I'm like, please steal it. Please. It's almost like a spit take when I say a good joke. It's it's up there with that. I take it. It's well, a huge you have to. Yeah, you, you've got to steal things from other people, A, because very few people invent something real. I mean, that's just it, it's just very rare. Um, and that's how we pass on information. That's how we've done it culturally uh, since we first, you know, made up myths around the, the proverbial campfire, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. That's always what we've done since we painted on on caves. It's that we've all stolen each other's stuff. And technically, that isn't mine because I stole it from the CIA, So, which is kind of appropriate and on the nose. <laughs> but yes, yes, indeed it is. Yeah, I'd make my mentors proud right now. Mm-hmm. Then they would say, actually, they'd say, why are you admitting to it? You should admit nothing, deny everything, make counter accusations. So I failed <laughs> completely. Um, I have to tell you, I have many people who told me to tell you hello because I'm from St. Louis. And you taped in St. Louis with one of my favorite people, Key, who owns Noodle House. Sure. And growing up, his other restaurant, May Lee, was our, like, family restaurant. We used to go at least once a week. So he was very excited. He wanted me to tell you hello and that I have no idea what this means, so I hope I'm not saying anything totally inappropriate. But he said something about the dry cleaning that he was going to pay for that. Yes. Well, here's here's, – I mean, first of all, for – for most people who maybe have not been to St. Louis, uh, he, his family's first restaurant was sort of the place to go for Vietnamese food in a town that didn't, didn't have a lot of options for it. And recently the, you know, Southeast Asian diaspora has created a ton of, you know, great, restaurants of that type and others have opened in St. Louis as they have in other cities around the world. But that restaurant was a major attachment point for so many people in that town. Um, And they really understand the hospitality business. I mean, that, that place, people would say to me, why do you keep eating there? You know, it doesn't have the best blank. And I'm like, who cares? Um, Most of my restaurant choices that I fall in love with, you know, in, in some cases they offer up the best, but it's much better to be the only than to be the best. And for a long time in that town, 
uh, Key's restaurant was not only the <laughs> the best, but also the only, uh, which made it so valuable. And his his new uh, ramen dumpling place is great. But when we taped an episode of, uh, I guess we were doing Zimmern List uh, there, uh, one of my newer shows on Travel Channel, um, a waiter who was very nervous had oh, brought gosh. like a, a two... Well, he was bringing dipping sauce for a whole group of folks to share, and it was a thick, nutty <laughs> dipping sauce. And there was about a cup and a half uh, uh, of the liquid in there. And I just sat down to do the scene, and he dumped it over my shoulder and uh, down the front of my shirt, pants, sneakers, everything. So I had to go back to the hotel, shower, and do a whole change and come back and do the uh, – uh, do the work. But what was so awful about the whole thing was um, most people are very upset when that happens to them. Uh, that kind of yeah. stuff doesn't upset me uh, at all. And the, the, the poor fellow thought, he must have felt I upset, but yeah, he felt that the crew was angry. He felt that he had misrepresented his colleagues and the rest. Uh, I mean, right. Cause he's supposed to, you know, he's the one on camera person at that point, you know, delivering the food to me. And he just felt so, and there's no amount of telling him, dude, it's, it's fine okay. that it's, they'll ever believe. But yes, that's the, they, that's, occasionally that stuff happens to me. I've I, had, I've had entire bowls of steaming uh, broth dumped on top of me and emergency <laughs> room trips. I've I've been knocked over into small crevasses, eating on glaciers in Nordic countries. Um, food accidents are no joke. So be safe out there, kids. Be safe with your peanut sauce. It's funny. I'm always the one who dumps it on people. And it's truly the whole phrase around me is, this is why we can't have nice things. I will break everything. I spill everything. I have no motor skills, no grace. So I, when you tell me that story, I'm like, I just want to hug the waiter and just, it's okay. I've been there many, many times. Of course. Who hasn't? Who hasn't? Uh, did you um, enjoy anything else of St. Louis cuisine? Because there's one thing that if you said you didn't like it, I would understand. Did you try the Provel cheese? I know a friend of mine, George Mayhe. I don't know if you remember meeting him. I think he gave you like a 10 pound block of it, which I'm sure it's still good at this point. Do you know everyone in the world? I really do. I'm, you well, must. I'm CIA. You're going, you're going deep in there, even by St. Louis standards. Um, um, well, Andrew, let's talk, let's I'm talk CIA. about St. Louis. Come on. Well, yes. <laughs> let's talk about St. Louis for a second. Okay. The, uh, the Provel cheese pizza thing is, is not good. It's um, disgusting. It's not, first of all, it's not real cheese. And the problem that I have with that is, um, is not that to take away things, the same issue that I have with spam, uh, which I get ridiculed for. People say, well, you know, you eat, you know, you know, guts and <laughs> offal and all kinds of other parts that no one else will eat. And I'm like, yes, when it comes fresh from an animal. Um, and I'll eat any kind of cheese when it's made from, from real milk. Um, but the amount of artificial stuff that's in Provel is just, just it's... god awful. It also doesn't have enough flavor for me. And in the world of cheese, there's so many great options. Now, culturally, I thought it was a fascinating story uh, that, you know, this, this inexpensive sort of, you know, government cheese food 
has become the pizza topping of choice and has defined pizza for an entire uh, well number of generations of uh, Missourians. But what's That's so crazy all I making, knew growing up. What's so yeah, but it, what's crazy making from an uh, you know as an outsider, as a cultural anthropologist, as a, as a chef is how can a group of people who are so, um, uh, you know, what's the word? They're, they're, they're so Catholic about their barbecue. Oh, it's a really, it really is. It's but, a religion. Right. But they, but who cares mm. about what you put on top of a pizza? I don't understand how that exists in the same it's, group of people. And it's, it's crazy making. And that's um, all I, it's so I, weird. I remember the first time I had real pizza didn't have, it's, it's the crust isn't even a crust. It's like, it, it's like a cracker, like the wafer you would take at communion. Like it's that thin. Yeah. Thin, you know, thin doesn't, it just, it has so many aspects of it that are just sort of un, unpleasant. And there's so much good pizza <laughs> out there and up on the hill, the Italian section so of town, good. there is so much other good pizza. I actually thought you were going down the toasted ravioli oh, uh, road go there. Or, or the or the ooey-gooey butter cake. Butter cake? Delightful. Uh, road. I mean, all of these, for folks who have never been, are sort of iconic only in St. Louis foods. And toasted ravioli is just ravioli that's been fried, so of course it's good. Correct. Have, and, have, you, been to, have you been to Smokey O's uh, no. barbecue? No. Oh, that's, that's, look, St. Louis has a lot of great barbecue, but Smokey O's holds a special place, uh, in my, uh, in my heart. And it's something that I think the next time you're in, you go home, so to speak, uh, I'll have George take me. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta go. Um, it's really an incredible, incredible, uh, place and it's on, uh, North Broadway. Uh, How do you remember the the streets even? Well, because I go there all the time. I, I was there just this, just like three or four months ago with my kid. Um, I wanted him to taste it. We were on a little bit of a a, a road trip. That's but amazing. the 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 neighborhood um, is is down on its luck. A lot of abandoned warehouses and storefronts. Yeah. And the 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 couple that owns uh, Smokey O's. Um, has been uh, sort of caretaking the neighborhood as well as opening up uh, a restaurant that serves great barbecue. Um, Otis and Erlene are unbelievable people. They're, Erlene's homemade cornbread might be the best cornbread I've really? ever eaten. I'm a cornbread yeah, connoisseur. I oh enjoy my carbs. It's just, it's just glorious. And they do, they do rib tips. They do snoots. I mean, it's a real uh, throwback barbecue joint I mean, to the days where the you, did, you didn't do luxury cuts. Can yeah, we, sure. is, is it a sweet cornbread? Is it more of a like a savory cornbread? It's it's in between. It's okay. a drier. It's a drier, crumblier cornbread, and it's made with white corn. And oh. I I dislike most cornbreads that are made that way. However, Erlene's is, is wrapped up in these pieces of saran wrap and then they heat it briefly in the microwave and serve it to you. Uh, well, you got to ask for it with butter and, uh, and barbecue sauce. And oh. it is just, Oh, it's, okay. it's heaven. 
I love Go that you took the place out. I think I, think I will. I think you'll like it. And I love that you took your son there, and it's food is been is a part of your travel and part of your experience passing on for me my uncle had a deli growing up and when he left but it was for us that was sort of a way of connection and I, I from a Jewish family so it's it's obviously it was very much a part of who we were as well and so I love that you you're doing that with your son I think it's pretty amazing well you gotta you have to signpost your life and I think I, I think one of the great things about growing up in my family was we signposted everything around food and travel. And that was something that everybody shared a love for. And so it's the only way I know how to do things. And so that's how I wound up doing what I do professionally. And I need to bring my son into that the same way my father brought me into that and his family before him, even though my grandparents were not foodies, uh, by the contemporary definition, they really liked food. So when my dad was growing up in the 1930s in New York, they took him to certain delis and restaurants and places that I've ended up going and taking my kid. Um, That's pretty four great. Generations, four generations of Zimmerns have eaten at Russ and Daughters, four nice. generations at Zabar's, four generations uh, at uh, Numwa. The, the oldest dumpling house uh, in Manhattan, uh, four generations at, at Wohop in Chinatown. I mean, there's, there's a whole slew of restaurants that, you know, I, I'm hoping are still open for my kid to take my grandchildren to. But that's, that's the way we signpost our lives. And uh, I, I'm glad that we have a way of doing that. I think everyone has to find their way of doing that. Uh, especially with kids these days. I mean, and yeah. look, adults adults are pulled in 5,000 different directions. Kids are pulled in even more. Um, but, you know, we have to spend time with each other over food. A generation ago, two generations ago, we spent 67 minutes having dinner with uh, our family uh, as a nation, historically. And now we're down to about 14 to 16, depending on, on where you measure it. That's an average um, and it just is less time to get connected. So I try to use mealtime as an easy way to connect with the people that I love. What was your favorite food growing up that your grandparents made? Like Jewish uh, food my, that you're, that was very iconic. Cause I, I remember growing up, there were certain things that my grandma made that I'm actually trying to find recipes of that I'm having a hard time, but it's, I just, those were my memories of her were connected to different things that she would make. Well, my, my parents divorced when I was six years old, um, and uh, my grandmother lived uh, on West End Avenue uh, between 79th and 80th Street, uh, right around the corner from Zabar's, right yes. ar around the corner from uh, Mount Naboa Synagogue, where she had been the president of the sisterhood for like 30 or 40 years. So and was my grandma. My, my, grand my grandmother was a, not a great communicator verbally but she cooked for everyone every weekend. And that's where the family convened my dad, me, his brother, his kids. And um, so everything that my grandmother made her roast chicken, I make to this day, her matzo ball soup, her chopped chicken liver, her brisket, her uh. pickled tongue, everything that she, you know, the, the, the 10 dishes that she made all the time are the ones that I make all the time. And I've actually taken two of her dishes that were about as, as clunky and supermarkety as you possibly can 
and turn them into like glorious sort of swelled up renditions uh, that I serve at, at you know any opportunity that I get. Her idea of a fancy hors d'oeuvre was she would take a cookie cutter and she would cut a piece of Wonder Bread into a small little like two inch <laughs> circle and she would smear oleo on it, which was a brand name for margarine in those days. I've replaced it with uh, a seaweed and lemon compound butter. Um, and then That's she a would little put bit fancier. A, she'd put a supermarket, the anchovy, the, the, the ones that are rolled up around a single caper. And she would put one on each piece <laughs> of bread with butter and then one parsley leaf. And that was her fancy canapé hors d'oeuvre because she loved bread, butter, and and anchovies. And I've turned that into, I've got six or seven recipes for different versions of it. I've kind of turned it into a little art form. Um, and the other one that she used to do was she would, she would take tomato juice. Um, she would add a little bit of uh, lemon to it, some chopped uh, parsley and some chopped scallion and onion and some canned uh, cooked salmon. And she would take plain gelatin, and add it to that mixture, and she'd pour it into a ring mold. I and know she'd this. Make an, she'd make an aspic of salmon with tomato, and I now do it with four or five different kinds of seaweed, uh, seafood, and uh, I make yellow tomato puree, and then strain it, and get the water out, and then jellify it, and it's it's a laborious process. But every time I eat the foods that my grandmother taught me how to make, it's celebrating not only a big part of what our family did growing up, but it also reminds me, I mean, that's the woman that really gave me my love of food and cooking because my dad would drop me off there Saturday afternoons. I'd always spend time at my grandmother's house, sleep over Saturday nights, and uh, I'd watch this woman cook for everyone all night Saturdays. They would show up Sunday We'd all have lunch, and then I'd leave with my dad and go home. That happened two or three weekends a month. And she really – she'd cook for 30 people in a tiny little kitchen that in that sense. Upper West Side apartment. It was it was quite something. It's my, my grandma made me – which was two-part story. I'll make it quick. She made me a cookbook. She went to, And she handwrote all the recipes, and so she sent it to me, mailed it to me when I was in L.A. But she mailed it to me in a DVD player box, and it was stolen – so I had to tell him, like, uh, Joan, you have to redo it. I didn't know she was asking me about it, so she resent it. But there was a oh. couple of her recipes. It, it killed me to have to tell her because she kept saying, did you get anything? Did you get anything? And then she told me what she did. And I had to say, I'm willing to believe someone is really disappointed right now because they thought they were getting a DVD player. And instead, they got your brisket <laughs> recipe, which is kind of a win. But I'm sure somebody is just going, God damn it. I thought this was a DVD player. Um, why are there no... And, it's great. My, she wrote all these recipes and then did all of her editorial. Like, your grandpa says this is to die for. The sisterhood loved it. So there's all the editorial. But she, there's a couple of her recipes she forgot to put in. Did you ever grow up with something called, and I'm going to say it wrong and butcher it, called, I think it's called like Munkickle. It's like a poppy seed and onion biscuit cookie. No, but that sounds fantastic. It's, where, I can't. Where, were you, where was your family from? Russia, Germany, Poland, mm -hmm. that whole sort of area. Oh, I'm surprised. Maybe, you know, a lot, of, a lot of terms for food are often colloquial. These foods come from times and places in our food history where there weren't as many geographical lines drawn on maps. And, I mean, if you just look at all the food of the Levant, I mean, you know, yeah. uh, 
Syria, Lebanon, Israel, you know, Jordan, all these countries all have the same roasted eggplant spread. It just goes by slightly different names and places, and it throws people off sometimes. Um, so maybe I know it by something different. Um, it sounds fantastic, though. Can you make it? You know, I'm trying to – I've been looking up recipes, and I've, saw, I've found sort of variations on it because I used to make it all the time, and it's it's very labor-intensive. I think it has like eight cups of flour. It's not a lot of ingredients, but it's like tons of onions and poppy seeds, and you have to chop your onion, and and you roll everything sure. out. So I used to take – you know, you take Advil when you're done because your body aches from it, but no, 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 no. Stop. You take Advil when you're I, – I love this when people say, oh, my God, it's so laborious. You have to chop onions. Oh, you have to measure flour. That sounds like <laughs> that, that sounds like a 10-minute job, and then you bake it in the oven. It takes – because you have to roll everything out, and it makes so much. Oh, my God, no. You have to roll it out. I feel like I'm being mocked right now. Am I, just to be clear, I'm, I'm being mocked, correct? Uh, just a little bit of okay. mockery. I appreciate that hint of mockery. I wouldn't respect you if you didn't mock me. Well, here's, you know, I, I tell people this all the time. Uh, People love to say that they're golfers and uh, they may not be great at it, but they, you know, a couple times a week go to, you know, you know, go to a putting green or have that little $10 contraption in their office, or they go to a driving range the month before the season opens, wherever they live. If it's not a, a 12 month a year golfing climate, and I tell people all the time, you can't call yourself a cook unless you have good knife skills. And quite frankly, everyone who loves to cook always complains about the time that it takes. And we're all time poor. I mean, this is 2000, you know, it's 2019. I mean, we, we, we are all time poor. And if everyone just chopped a carrot and an onion, you know, once a day and just worked on their knife skills within a month, you would cut your prep time in half. You'd just be handier with a knife. Um, it would be an invaluable exercise uh, for people. And it's something that I urge more people to do. Baking is sometimes a little bit, a little bit different. I, I, I make very few of my grandmother's baked goods because that's not the, the place that I went down, the, the road I went down yeah. as, a, as a professional. Um, but I did lose all of her, well, I lost all of my family's possessions. As an only child, everything went to me when I turned about 25. Uh, and I ended up with tons of stuff in storage. And then in 1990, I went homeless, uh, for about 11, 12 months as, as, you know, my addictions and crazy lifestyle sort of cratered my, my existence. Um, and they ended up selling, I didn't pay the bills for the, uh, storage place. So they ended up selling it for pennies on a pound, uh, which remains to this day, one of the great heartbreaks of of my life when when people say in interviews oh i have no regrets because to live without them would i'm just like oh my god what a bunch of bullshit i yeah i mean everybody my regrets my regrets are fairly few but one of the real disappointments of my life is that all of my family's possessions the ones that i was gifted with whether it was my mother's my father's or my grandparents on either side uh i no longer have so it's a it's it's one of one of the few tragedies that uh, that I still think about almost on a daily basis. It's kind of crazy. No, it's not. I think we all have that. We all have those 
those moments, no matter what they are, that sort of stick in our stick in our crawl and it becomes part of our DNA that even if we don't want to think about it, we can't help but thinking about it because they're they've had that type of impact. Does mm-hmm. um I'm I'm also just and I want to talk about that later, but since you brought it up, I I've always been impressed at the honesty and the openness you've talked about your addiction and everything you've gone through also with depression as well. Cause I think everybody has touched that's touched everyone's life. And I think what you've done has, has really broadened the conversation and it's so important. And I've just so admired that and what you've done in terms of that dialogue. Well, thank you. Um, I did it very selfishly. Uh, it was a life-saving exercise, um, for me and everyone's recovery is different. Um, last January I celebrated 27 years. Um, and I've, you know, uh, I've not always been, uh, the articulate advocate or as, uh, or have the ability to take what I learned in, in the recovery world and put it out into the universe. Um, that took about, oh gosh, I don't know, uh, 10, 12 years of, of head ass and overcoat sobriety to sort of get there. Um, but I found early on, um, when confronted with a work situation, I went to, uh, one of my gurus at the time. Um, and you know, I'm a regular attendee of 12 step meetings and all of that. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you, you do, uh, in those groups to sort of, you know, get sober and stay sober. Um, and it goes beyond being dry. Um, it, 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 it's really about saving your, your life on a daily basis. And I was confronted with a, 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 my first job because when I got out of, I got out of my primary treatment care, which was about 40 days. And it was rec- recommended that I go live in a halfway house, which I did. And I got a job washing dishes and uh, bussing tables at a local diner. Um, and then when I was getting ready to leave the halfway house, I had to get a real job uh, that, you know, where I could afford first and last month's rent on an apartment and all those other sorts of things. And, um, I had to, you know, I had to upgrade that, that bus boy. And it was only part-time because, uh, I mean, it was a very much a real job and a lot of Americans had those jobs. Um, but I was trying to focus on my recovery and I wasn't paying, wasn't paying bills for, you know, residential or food, you know, because that was, I was, that was taken care of at the halfway house. Uh, back in the days when insurance paid for some of that and some generous oh. friends of mine uh, were helping to bankroll my uh, early residential recovery, um, which was very, I was very lucky to receive, which is why I work so hard on Capitol Hill for mental health parity laws, because quite frankly, there's, there's, we don't have those options we anymore for people. They're not, they um, don't exist anymore. Well, yeah. And it's what's, you know, people say, oh, we can't afford to do that. And my opinion, quite frankly, is we can't afford not to, to do it. Um, you know, you know, whether it's prison reform, whether it's health insurance, whether I mean, you name your issue. Um, if we took care of human beings better, uh, we would be in much, much, much uh, better shape and actually be saving money, which is my my big problem with a lot of um sort of longtime Republican, you know, plank issues on small government is that government's, I think, number one dictum is to take care of the safety and security of its people. And I think when it comes to our, you know, mental health uh, issues and isms, 
we we've seen you know skyrocketing uh, drug and alcohol issues, you know, suicide, uh, opioid ed- epidemic. I mean, I'm just teen yeah. suicide. I'm just cherry picking gun violence. I'm oh. just cherry picking issues from today's newspaper. Um, they're all at all time highs, and we're doing less and less in the emotional care and, and mental health wellness space for our citizens. Well, and it's to me, it's well, first of all, we don't, I don't think we do a good job for preventive care, but it, I always tell people it's truly your brain is the most important organ you have, and we give it the least amount of attention and least amount of care. And to Correct. me, which is boggling to me. And if we yeah. were to invest in that, it would, we'd see the impact on all these other issues. And to speak to the wallet, it would save us, I mean, Tons of money. I mean, it's it's ridiculous that we're not doing it, and it makes perfect sense, which is probably the reason why we don't do it. And then we'd save we'd save plenty of lives uh, along the way. You know, we're not we're not treating human beings with the dignity and respect uh, that we should. You know, it's like food insecurity issues. Um, We you know we talk all the time. I mean, here in this country, we're in the greatest romantic relationship with food of any culture and any civilization in the history of planet Earth. But yeah. somehow it's okay that 25% of our citizens, and that includes that number includes children. 25% children. of children are food insecure. That's that's not shameful to me. That's criminal. I mean, this is the most that's the most ridiculous that we can't feed every child in America uh, is is preposterous. And it's it's actually one of the reasons. Getting back to your question, why I became so transparent because I learned early on when I went and got my first job outside of that uh, that diner. Um, they said to me, okay, here are your hours. And I had to invest in the loss and be honest and transparent. And I had to say to them, I can't work Monday night, Wednesday night, and Friday night. Those are my rock solid, can't miss them, you know, meeting nights. Um, and they were like meetings for what? And I had to tell them I'm a recovering addict and alcoholic, and it's a 12 step meeting that I go to. And, uh, I'd invest in the loss that maybe I wouldn't get the job. Um, and they ended up giving me the job and giving me the schedule that I wanted. And it just taught me, I mean, literally ever since that moment, I decided that I would be a transparent person, except when to do so would hurt or compromise other people. Um, by, you know, if I was too selfish about it, um, it's a much easier way to live, even though it seems hard in the moment, it's so much easier. Eventually, when I when I created Bizarre Foods, everyone and and look, I, I the people who see it as an entertainment, I'm glad that they do. People need entertainment, and those folks who thought that the show was all about a fat white guy that goes around the world and bugs, <laughs> that's great because they get what they need out of that show. But I was really very consciously, and I and I learned it in my recovering uh, life. And and in an attempt to true up all parts of my life and have all parts of my life be predicated on the same principles, I wanted to do for in my work life something that, um, you know, called out people that were practicing contempt prior to investigation, judging books by their covers. I wanted to talk about patient tolerance and understanding in a world that seemed to be having increasingly alarming conversations about things that differentiated us instead of things that we had in common. Um, 
I, I, I don't care, you know, who you want to fuck, what you want to eat, what God you pray to, uh, what skin color you have, what language you speak. All that stuff is much less important to me. Some of it's absolutely unimportant. It's very personal. I- yeah, um, I care I, less. I want to connect. I want to connect to people on on other issues of the day and other things that unite us and make us all human. And I learned that, you know, in you know the recovery rooms. I learned that as I got sober. So I was just linking up all the different areas of my life. And eventually, when the show was a hit. Um, you know, some four, 13, 14 years ago when the, when the pilots kind of took off and I started to have what I call a public life, um, I decided that I was going to be completely transparent about what my life was like and that I could, in fact, you know, because it's attraction, not promotion, could actually demonstrate um, what happens when you sprinkle a human being with dignity and respect because I had come into my sobriety 27 years and a few months ago, uh, a user of people and a taker of things. And, you know, I was a mess and a little dignity and respect turned me around. And, you know, now I pay taxes and employ people and have a robust life and, you know, can, you know, I'm a dad and, you know, so many incredible gifts that I've gotten and people should see that side of heroin addiction and that side of homelessness. Cause I checked both those boxes. Um, and you know, not just see the heads of young kids getting shoved in the backs of police cars while some newscaster talks about an opioid epidemic that's raging in this country. We send a message to people that it's only happening, uh, with, uh, marginalized people on the fringes, uh, regardless of skin color. I mean, you know, we see, yeah you know, black youth being pushed in the backs of police cars. We see all of those, you know, crackhead photos running around the internet of, you know, meth addicts, you know, from, you know, rural America, you know, vibrant women in one picture from a high school yearbook and three years later, toothless. And I mean, we, we, we call out these cliches in a, in a, in a ridiculous way in an alarmist sense. Um, and we need to show people the, the benefits of recovery as well. When you traveled, were you surprised? I'm, I have a, a healthy dose of wanderlust myself, and I love to travel. And I've always found that it's always interesting to see how other countries treat homelessness or treat food in regards to their community and how they do a lot, you know, many times a better job in healthcare and in mental health. And I, what I like about your show and, and shows that do that is it really becomes this way of, of shining a light on really on what we can do better. And I hope that we have that type of open-mindedness and we're not so myopic that we can go, well, we could do this. Look, look at what they're doing for the people here. I think it's pretty impressive. Have, what places have you been where you've thought this, we could do this, we could take these lessons? Well, to be honest with you, I, I, I wish we could all be like Scandinavia. I was going to ask you, you were going to say that. I didn't want to put words in your mouth. Yep. There, I mean, that's probably the, the area of the world. I mean, Iceland might be the most progressive country on planet Earth. Uh, Denmark, uh, well, at least famously in the circles I travel in just two or three days ago, um, 
the the government stepped in and is creating a huge food and culture uh, program along with Rennie Redzepi's uh, MAD Symposium um, and actually going to, you know, use food and culture uh, in, I think, the, the best way possible to teach us about uh, our commonalities, but more importantly, to help us find uh, solutions uh, to many of the you know, the vagaries that we suffer um, as a society, at least as the, as the Danes do. Um, you know, there is, there is so much uh, in that part of the world from a social justice standpoint that they do very, very well. There are so many countries that historically have done so much with their people, but are, are getting westernized and, you know, issues of class, um, issues of otherness uh, have crept into them. Uh, to the point where we're sort of just, you know, Western ways of thinking and doing as our globe flattens have both been benefits in some cases, medicine, education, uh, but in others uh, have, you know, capitalism and, you know, and I'm not arguing, I, I still think we have the best system until someone can show me one that, that works better. Works better. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't believe in, you know, the, the, you know, private property should be outlawed. I mean, it's a sort of a ridiculous uh, thing, but there is something to be learned from all the tribal peoples of the world that we visited in our shows where we actually saw the benefits of having uh, no private property where everything is shared. There's a heightened sense of togetherness. Now that works for, that, that works for, a family group or tribal system of a hundred people living isolated in a jungle uh, or a high desert somewhere. It doesn't work for cities of, of 10 million people. Um, the integration of those ideas is way too radical. And, you know, we can't go back to a lot of the systems uh, that we've used in ancient times, but we can learn from them. And, uh, but I think, you know, if, if I had to pick, you know, one group that I think is doing it right, it's its what's happening uh, over in the Nordic uh, countries, especially when it comes to uh, how they how they treat its citizens. There's there's a lot to be learned from them. And I mean, look, look what's happening in so many countries with healthcare. You know, yeah. you know, we just need to look north to Canada uh, if we want to. You know, Paul's looking north have, to Canada to get his surgery done, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> um, and you know, countries like Australia, countries like Australia, I think you know have their you know gun laws uh, in the right place. We certainly yep. don't have Absolutely. them uh, in the right place in our world. And and you're talking to a lifetime hunter and and gun owner. I mean, I was shocked when I bought my last gun how easy it was uh, and how simple the process was and the 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 way in which the background checks were conducted, it took me 10 minutes of the store. I mean, it's well, I mean, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Did you grow up with guns in your family? It was weird because I, no. I didn't, my dad did, and I always thought he was the only Jew with a gun. That's and it was so, so funny because I always tell people I'm the anti-Jew Jew, and they say, what do you mean by that? And it's like, well, I'm so Jewy. I mean, I really am. I'm like know, Moses, I'm just, I get it. I'm deliciously Jewy, and... Uh, but at the same time, Jews aren't supposed to be hunters or alcoholics. And I check both boxes. <laughs> You're like, sorry. 
That's when you said you had guns. I just went, wait a minute. The only other gun owner I know is my dad. But he had a little bit of an accident, so he no longer owns the guns because he wanted to stay married to my my mom. So oh, that's new. Yeah, so there's that. I have. Do you have any other bucket list places left that you want to go to, or have you done everything? So everything's you oh just like God. been there. Tons, no, tons, tons. You've been to 170 I mean, places. Where would you want to go that you haven't been to yet? I want to go 20 more times back to Russia, 20 more times back to China, 20 more times back to Chile, to Argentina. Okay. Um, I mean, there's so many places in the world that I've been and spent a, you know, I mean, I've been to China 20 times. No trip less than two weeks. Um, but I still want to go back because there's so much that I haven't seen. I still haven't seen the Great Wall. It's, um, do you, like, when you, you leave know, a place, do you go, that's, whenever I leave, because my husband and I will travel, we try to take mm-hmm. one or two big trips. I always go, that's my favorite. And he said, well, you said that was your favorite last year. I'm like, well, it was my favorite, but now this is my favorite. I am a bright, shiny objects person. People always ask me, what's your favorite food? And I always tell them the country, the place that I just left. Because I immerse myself so deeply. I immerse myself so deeply in these places before I go, while I'm there, that it's hard to shake uh, for a while afterwards. And, and, you know, then I get get some perspective when I'm home. That being said, um, the two greatest cuisines in the world are, are, you know, the, the foods, techniques of Mexico and the foods and techniques of China. Um, they sit above all others in terms of depth and breadth, uh, variety of ingredients, uh, region to region, city to city, town to town. Nothing compares to them. Uh, way before the, you know, the European food that we in the West are sort of obsessed with, um, it's, it's, it's a goofy sort of thing. But those two, those two food cultures are are at the top and there's a big space before you get down to third, fourth, and fifth. Really? Cause it's oh, absolutely. I see, like I do, we, I've done Shanghai, uh, Hong Kong, Taipei, which isn't really, but we haven't, I'd love to do Beijing. That's, oh. that's on my list. Well, look, I mean, you've, you've gone to some fantastic, fantastic places. I mean, there's nothing quite like, uh, traversing a country to really understand the differences in the food scene. And I've been lucky in that I've, I've been able to traverse China a couple of times. Um, Beijing is wonderful, but there's so many great places to eat uh, in China and Taipei. I mean, it's, it's sort of controversial to, to, to say it, but there's an inseparableness about the PRC and the the island country of Taiwan, um, the the food in Taiwan I think is one of the most underrated food scenes on that. planet Earth. First of all, it's an island, so food traditions have stuck there. They have indigenous Indian uh, and First Peoples food up in the mountains. Tribal peoples that were obsessed with honey, honey people that were up there. They're just make the food in just. I mean, there's so much to see and do there for the. Taiwan oh, may, may be the greatest country in the world in terms of ingredients. Um, one of my favorite places. Oh my far. gosh. It's just mind boggling. The combination of great restaurants and street food and on and on and on. And also, but his, it, it's so nice. You, oh yeah, people, of course. I've yeah, never been to a place, honestly, that 
people were so incredibly lovely. And because I'm such a cynic, we were walking down the street and people just said, Hey, welcome to, you know, welcome to Taipei. And I, 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 you know, I looked at my purse and I'm like, Oh no, people are just being super, super kind. And we're not used to it. I loved it. it, It's very true. And, you know, I think people, you know, mistakenly and somewhat uh, ethnocentrically, which is a, a fancy form of racism, call it, you know, China that works. Um, and I, I, I take obses- uh, exception to that because I, I, I see an awful lot in, in China, uh, the PRC that works. Um, but, but that being said, the, the country's histories are so interwoven, you can't really talk about any Asian community from a food standpoint and not talk about China. Uh, it's influenced so much and obviously especially on that island, despite the Japanese occupation, which is another reason that the food is so fantastic in uh, Taiwan. The Japanese have left behind a way of thinking and executing food that has created a a type of uh, cuisine the Taiwanese execute that has a lot of Japanese influence in it, uh, much in the same way that um, 500 years of Spanish occupation in the Philippines has left behind techniques and flavors that make, uh, you know, Filipino food, in my opinion, one of the great cuisines in the, in the world as well. Um, those, those hybridized elastic ideas about food oftentimes come from really bad moments in history. And I find studying them absolutely fascinating. Who's who's, we don't have a ton of time, but I'm curious what's next on your travel list. Where are you going next? Uh, well, the big stuff, um, I'm doing a lot of work with the uh, IRC and uh, with the UNDP. And so my next big trip uh, is, I think I'm going to Patagonia to That's do amazing. some shooting for a project uh, in April. And then in you know May, June, July, I'm doing a lot of refugee camps around the world. I'm going to go back to Zatari on the Jordanian-Syrian border. I'm going into the Sahel uh, at a to a location that's yet to be determined, and I'm going to go to Bangladesh to the largest uh, uh, refugee camp for the Rohingya, um, and do some work over there uh, before my UNDP stuff gets uh, gets announced. Um, uh, and I, after that trip, it's, it's and I just be, want people. Sorry, I, I want people to yeah. actually look up IRC as well because they do amazing, amazing work. It's International Rescue oh. Committee, and yeah. they're. I, I don't mean, to, and I'm I'm not overly religious, but I kind of feel like they're doing God's work. And they people think it's you know overseas. They do amazing work domestically as well, and it's just it's incredible their reach and what they're doing. So I. I encourage people to look it up because I, I, that was something that I wanted to talk to you about. So you did that beautifully and you wove it in. So thank you. Uh, oh, well, I just, it is a, it is a great organization. And I, I, you know, my, what I've tried to do with my platform and my, you know, volunteer work and my social justice advocacy and my money and, and everything has been, you know, sort of this guiding principle that I have to fight because inside I'm a bastard. Um, I mean, I, I really, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm selfish and self-centered by definition. So I have to work really hard to do things. And I've learned that you can act your way into right thinking. You can't think your way into right acting. And so I've worked for 27 years to actually 
by doing change the way I think and feel. And so we have it as a mandate here in our companies uh, back here in Minnesota uh, that we, we spend about 25% of our time, money, effort, human beings, everything on our nonprofit stuff. And um, my dream was to always, because I was such a globalist and traveled so much was to, uh, start doing things with the IRC, with the United Nations Development Program, and two great organizations, and that I'm finally at the point in my career where I get to do that um, allows me to message a lot of things that I think are really important. You know, the world is, is, is shrinking, and what's going on halfway around the world affects us at home more than we ever thought, and I certainly think that the last two years uh, we've seen what happens yeah. when our foreign policy regresses and what a dangerous position, tenuous position this administration has put us in. Um, so raising more awareness around those issues, I think, is is more important than ever. It's I. It's funny because last year we I was in Morocco and I which I loved. And of course, now, if you ask me my favorite place, I'm like, it's Morocco. But is it amazing? Oh my, I, I describe Morocco as that moment in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy opens the door and she goes from black and white to technicolor. Color, it's, yeah. It's that moment. And I, I don't know how to describe it. I couldn't take it all in. It was very emotional because it was just so much of the color and the smell. And just, I loved it so much, but it was so interesting. People had so many questions about Trump. People had so many questions and... I called it our apology tour because I kept saying, it's not us. Don't blame us. We don't think that way. And, you know, somebody wants Welcome said, to my world. Yeah. And it's, you know, you don't want to say I'm from Canada just to like make people feel better. But, you know, somebody said, can I thank you in Arabic? And I said, of course you can. And he goes, well, I know that you all don't like us. And I, it was like a gut punch. Oh, it's, and I, it's horrific. When, when I was traveling as a youngster, uh, uh, I mean, it, it's it's probably a, a great place to come full circle. When I was traveling as a youngster with my father, and I went around the world with him several times before I was 14 years old, he was working in international business, and I would travel with him on all vacations, and we do crazy weekends abroad and stuff like that. That's my amazing. father would point out that there was there there were pictures of American presidents in homes all over the world, little Greek islands uh, to European capitals to South American hunting lodges. Um, there were pictures, uh, mostly of president Kennedy, um, in almost all of these homes. And as the years wore on and I would travel, I would see other sort of, you know, tangible symbols of how effective, uh, this idea of America was, uh, as it was projected overseas. And, um, again, when Obama, uh, was elected, um, after the Bush years, um, I have never seen such an explosive, I mean, literally overnight, Obama uh, Love. posters, Obama murals. I mean, I, all over the it, world where I we was saw traveling, Obama cookies. See, there was, uh, it was, we, I it was unbelievable. It was. it was unreal. It was, you, yes. it was the love tour. I, you know, everywhere you went, people would ask about him. And it was yep. just, I felt very connected when we traveled. It yep. was Truly. And it was it was the idea there it, 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 that that anything was possible in this country. Your dreams could come true in America. And uh, now it's the exact opposite. And, you know, you try to tell people um, 
how dismissed and and disrespected and this sort of uh, and and in in some cases I think it's it's good. I mean, you know, forests need to burn before they can start growing again. Um, but, but this is scorched such dangerous earth. territory. It is exactly in certain places it may not grow back. And I'm, that was you were you used the metaphor I was going to use as well, and it's it's very very frightening to me. It's scary for me also, and I'm sure you as a father, and I, I have two nieces and a nephew that are three, nie- oh, three nieces. I didn't forget about the third, uh, and a nephew. And I, it, it scares me. It frightens me to think that this is the world they're seeing now because I want them to see it as endless possibility and a, and a world where we live, where every opportunity is fair and you work hard mm-hmm. and you, that's how you succeed. And there's nothing in the news that shows them that. And I was so excited to think that maybe they'd see a female president. And, and it's funny now I'm, I'm on the other side. I end every email to my nieces with, I love you and make a run for the white house. And to a point yeah. where everyone's like, take it, take it down a notch, Chachi. I'm like, no, no, they need to, they need to make a run. I, I, I find it so discouraging. And I hope that we see with Mueller that our system works. And I want them to see that our government can work. Cause right well, now we, they're seeing a broken are. government. We, we, we will. I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that uh, Bob Mueller is, was the exact right guy. He's going to have a very truthful report. I'm so. not sure that all of our dreams will come true because of the Mueller report. I've, uh, made, I, I I've made all my birthday com- wishes on this, this report, Andrew. So don't- I, I, I just think we're going to get a little bit let down. Only because, uh, only because of what's provable and what isn't. However, I do think that the, whether it's the Southern District of New York or other entities, I think when all is said and done, hopefully we will be rid of this man before the election uh, in 2020. And if he has to be voted out, I'm very, very scared uh, about it, because as I travel around America, the we're not doing a great job. And I'm a lifelong left wing Lindsay liberal. Uh, you know, my party is not doing a great job of showing those people how, uh, you know, that voting in their own interest might actually be a good idea this time. Yeah. And it scares me. But one way, one way or another, and when it, if I had to place my bet, I think the Southern District of New York are the ones that are going to to dangle the so. handcuffs in front of that guy. The problem is, I if hope he gets they do elected it. again because, well, he's got a, he's got an Attorney General in the Supreme Court that believe that you can't indict a sitting president. So mm-hmm. you know he might get reelected while they're standing outside the White House jangling handcuffs. I mean, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Well. Uh, if you could pick, and then I'll let you go because we've, I've taken so much of your time, but I have so many questions still, but if you could pick one person to go to jail first, who would it be? I know it's like, it's like picking your favorite like, kid, but I, cause I'm, I debate whether it should be Jared or Don Jr. First followed by Trump. Well, put it this way. I don't think it's realistic that Trump would be the first one to go. Um, and I would rather I, I, I would rather see Kushner only because of the role that he plays within our government. He is technically officially an advisor. Don Jr. just runs uh, the Trump businesses. Um, and I, think, I hope so, he used so that Don word. Jr. Is, Don Jr. is going to going to go to jail at some point anyway. I mean, you know, you can't run a crime family. The RICO statute 
issues alone, I think when the when the birds come home to roost over the next, you know, eight to 16 months, I think we're I think Don Jr. is 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 going somewhere fast on a bad train. But oh. symbolically, I think I would like to see Kushner taken out of it. I'm I am so shocked that our our you know, the the GOP led Senate is so uh uh, politically emasculated that they can so ineffective and so in the pocket of these people that they can while you know, because you know while laws may not be provable to be broken there is enough uh, uh, indecency and uh, enough failure of uh, oath of office uh, to get rid of Ivanka and Jared and on and on I mean, how compromised. Uh, do you have to be? I mean, you just between Jared and Ivanka, um, that they're, I mean, they are beyond the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg of our generation. I mean, it's just absolutely scary, uh, to me. Horrifying. It is someone who worked in the intelligence community. Everything that is going on with them is horrifying. And it's, I just wrote a piece about it. It's, it it literally, I, I look at it and I'm apoplectic over what's happening. And the fact that I'm more, I'm more more apoplectic. That, I mean, the, uh, well, I, I don't know what your apoplexy is about, but for me, that our Republican-led Senate allows it, allow it. more more disappointing uh, to me um, is that the majority uh, of uh, people who support the president, vast majority, couldn't care less that these that that these norms and policies and the way in which we conduct business is being broken because they are still leaning into the myth that they're doing better economically uh, under this president. And the bubble is going to break, and I hope it breaks before 2020, because right now, as I travel around this country, those with less are still drinking the Kool-Aid that things are okay for them. It's And it's truly, I. it's funny, because the replies I would get when I would talk about Kushner, everyone's get over it. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. No, it it's all a very, very big deal. And I think we're starting, people are going to start to see that. And that's what I hope the report will illuminate, but in, in a way that will make it sort of edible for people who are still naysayers, where they can digest and go, okay, these are this poses a real crisis to our democracy. And not in some esoteric way, but in a way that they can really no. see it, feel it. Yeah. Because 100, when we. I, 100%. Um, before I also, I didn't even get to chat about your book. I, and I was, I wanted just to say congratulations. Your book came out in February, AZ and the Lost City of Ophir, Alliance of yeah, the World Explorers. Yeah, get it on Amazon. People can go to uh, azworldexplorer.com if they want to learn more about the book. AndrewZimmern.com has links to it. Um, yeah, it's a kids' adventure reading series that I just – I'm really into adventure learning, and I'm really into young people uh, in you know 6 to 13 age range being able to see kids who are talking honestly about – what's really happening in their lives while still being an entertaining book. Um, it is, I think fills a hole that's missing for readers at that level, but at, at its core, it's a rip roaring Indiana Jones style adventure that parents will love that has a lot of English and science and anthropology and sociology and history and food baked into it. We have a sample chapter on azworldexplorer.com 
and I would encourage all your listeners to to look at the website. The, the proceeds from the book go to benefit No Kid Hungry. So if you buy a book and even you give it to your library or give it to a kid, even if you're not a parent, um, it's such it's an important to... way to give back to a community that um, that really needs help, and that's hungry children. And also, it, I also encourage people to go to your website. You also, what's nice is you have a list of all the charitable organizations you work with, and some of them are well known, some of them not as well known. And I think it's it was just it was very illuminating all the good work you're doing, but also other ways that. Some of us can also support you and also support some of these amazing organizations Absolutely. and giving them a little bit of attention. And I just want to thank you so much for, I'm so excited. We got to talk, by the way, your key lime pie recipe is my key lime pie recipe. I saw that you posted. That's my, yes. it's the best There's, key lime pie recipe ever, by the way. Period. And, and it's not much different. I mean, you know, there, there are certain things that you, you start with as a given when it comes yes. to certain basic dishes and you know, the key lime pie that I make is the same technique, uh, slightly different ratio than a lot of other people. But if you're not using that technique, you don't end up with that glassy tart, gorgeous custard, and it should be whipped cream, not egg whites whipped into a no, meringue. Let's that's, end that. That's, not good. that, that that's going to end right here. That's bullshit. No. Yep. It is. I do add. I do sometimes add um, some key lime zest to mine on occasion if I'm trying to fancy. But it's literally the same ratio. I do that on top of the whipped cream because I don't want some of the bitterness or the texture of smoothness to be ruined. But I want that fragrance. Wait a minute. You just totally shaded me, by the way, Andrew. Well, you know, you, 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 me, same, same is not always going to be an equitable exchange. I don't want the texture to be ruined, but you do you, Emily. I adore you. (laughs) I literally got so excited with the recipe. I'm saying, I was, I started setting it to be, I'm like, this is my recipe. Um, thank you again, Andrew. This has been such a joy and I'm, I'm such a huge, huge fan of everything you do on TV, but also just everything you do in the community and all of your social activism. When I started this podcast, what I wanted to do was talk to people, obviously in the entertainment community, but I wanted to highlight people who are really making a difference and are walking the walk and talking the talk and doing, making a real difference. And having an impact on our community, especially now when I think so many of us are feeling a little bit helpless and like they don't know where to turn and how to make a difference. And you're leading by example. And I know you've criticized yourself and said, you know, this wasn't always your norm, but I have to tell you what you're doing is so important. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because I think it's inspiring and it, it shows everybody that, you know, even the little bit of things we can do, those little touches, they make a difference. And if you can leave your thumbprint in the world, you're going to leave it as a better place. And you can keep supporting Deep State Network, go to our website, you can sign up to become a member. And if you do, what's cool is you get all these interviews a couple days early, you get newsmaker interviews, discounts on all that cool Deep Deep State swag. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Zimran and follow him on Instagram. Your Instagram's amazing at Chef AZ. By the way, I'm friends with Asha and Sam Vinaigrette. We were just hanging out. We were talking about Oh, you. I know. Oh, you I, know. I, I saw that because I follow I I follow all of you guys too. Okay. You're 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 a trio. It's it's you know, it's like, you know, Wonder Woman, Batgirl, and Supergirl. If whichever one has no grace or motor skills, that's me. The one who trips and falls. Please. The superhero Please. who literally has like a sprained ankle and wears a patch on her eye because she has lazy eye. That would be me. That would be my yes. superhero. 
Um, and you can follow me, of course, at CIA Spy Girl. I'm the same on Instagram and on Twitter. And thank you all for listening. And Andrew, thank you again. Really, really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Have a okay. great day. You too. Bye-bye. See you on the Twitterverse. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.